First one being that next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. So we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, Resurrection Sunday. So we'll be celebrating that as well. Yep. So uh, looking forward to those two things. April 2nd next week is the is the first Sunday of the month celebrating the Lord's Supper. And then the following Sunday, April 9th, we will be celebrating Resurrection Sunday. All righty. Let's begin this morning. If you could turn to your... We're not going to have any song service this morning for obvious reasons. <laughs> Except for that. The Lord came through, but, we, but there's too much. You know, we've already burned through 10 minutes. So we're... That's crazy. All right. Yep, yep, it was a good song too, but all right, title's message, The Father Who Sent Me. It's from the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Let's begin now. All right. Gospel of John, chapter 12. So we're starting this morning in verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of man rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. We are now approaching a big divide in the Gospel of John. Chapters 2 to 12, as we've seen, document the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we travel with him as he visited the towns of Galilee, performing miracles at places like Cana and the shores of the western side of the Sea of Galilee. We were with him when he journeyed to Jerusalem for the different feasts and performed more miracles and had great opposition from the leadership. We listened to his preaching and the things he said about himself and his father. But now that phase of his life will end. And when chapter 13 starts, Jesus will be in a private place. He will no longer be in public and just his closest disciples will be with him. He will not preach anymore to the crowds. Instead, he'll be teaching the 12 about what is to come. As we saw last week, the rest of chapter 12, from verses 37 to 50, provide a summing up of Jesus' ministry. Right? In other words, there's nothing new that's given in this last part. It's the summary. Okay? It's the conclusion. And we've seen it comes in two parts. In the first part, in verses 37 to 43, John now is writing. Jesus isn't speaking. John is writing, and he's reflecting. And what he's reflecting on is the tragic mystery, the, the fact that the Jews, who were the people of, of the Lord, 
rejected him. So he's reflecting on that mystery of Jewish unbelief, the widespread rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel. That's verses 37 to 43. And then in the second paragraph, this is the last paragraph of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus comes back and he speaks. Now, we're not sure who he's speaking to or exactly when. And that's okay because what's happening here is Jesus now is speaking and he's summarizing his teaching in this last section, verses 44 to 50 of chapter 12. And what he's going to focus on is the fact that he is sent by his father. He's going to, he's going to, it's going to be front and center, the relationship between Jesus and his father or between the son and the father. Today, today we will read these last things that John had to say on the subject of Jewish unbelief, and then we'll, we'll begin with what Jesus has to say in that second paragraph. Now, last week we saw that, that John was talking about the fact that though Jesus performed many miracles, the people weren't believing in him. And then remember, he went to the prophet Isaiah. He had two quotations from the prophet Isaiah to help him explain why this was. Right. The first one was at the beginning of Isaiah's public ministry. The Lord told him the people aren't going to listen to you. You know, and you what's going to happen is what you say to them is only going to harden their hearts to the point where they won't be able to see or hear the things of the Lord. So so that was an explanation. And also we talked about the fact that that uh, in, in chapter 50 of the, of the book of Isaiah, that he, here's the report. But who has believed it? Well, today we actually get a little bit of the flip side, because today, when we as we begin this morning, we're going to see that there were some who, who did believe. And we've seen there are quite a few who did, actually. I mean, it's not all negative in the public ministry of Jesus Christ. There were some who believed. Most did not. But even here, when he speaks about those who did believe, he ends on a note of disappointment. Let's begin. John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. What motivated them to not confess Jesus Christ publicly? Fear. And in particular, a fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Synagogue was the meeting place for the community of the Jews. It wasn't the temple. It wasn't where the sacrifices were performed. And, and in certain respects, there is a social function to the synagogue at that time, as well as as well as preaching the word of God. Then verse 43, Jesus, John now zooms in on the real issue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. We go back to John. We won't go there. But in John chapter five, he said something similar. He had said that. How can you believe when you strive after the glory of man and not the glory of God? And this is the this is the thing that ultimately explains why they didn't believe. They were more interested in the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Or even if they did believe, they weren't willing to confess him. They weren't willing to tell everybody about him. They weren't willing to say, and these are the these are the rulers now to say, no, you I, I now believe in Jesus Christ. They weren't willing to say even that. 
Many of the rulers believed in him. Many, it wasn't just a couple, it was many of them. You can imagine the frustration, that's the right word, or the disappointment that Jesus had in his heart, that here are people who, uh, responsibility, authority, and they believed in it. If they had only spoken of it, what a difference that would have made. Now you would finally have leadership who was believing in Jesus Christ. That would have changed the whole ballgame. Many even of the rulers believed in him. And that, that begs the question, who were these rulers? And I have to tell you, it's not clear. We're not given any more information, just the basics, that here we have rulers who believed in him. John doesn't further identify who these rulers are. He does, notice, distinguish them from the Pharisees. Look at verse 42 again. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing them. So these rulers were not the Pharisees. It's probable that they weren't the chief priests either, because he would have said so. This was another category of rulers. We know we get no other information than that. But rulers, have, they would have authority. They would be leaders. But, and they believed in Jesus Christ. They probably believed that he was the Christ, because that was the thing that that um, the, the the leadership, the rulership, um, that was the one of the conflicts. That was one of the differences between the people and the rulers. There were a lot of people who, especially after the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, they realized and they believed that he's the Messiah. If only the rulers had stepped forward and also put their stamp of approval, as it were, their recognition, their belief that, yes, this is the Christ. Now, now you would have had a, a, a movement that wouldn't just be the common people, but also the rulership. But they didn't. Why? Well, it's real simple. It's a real human problem. While they had convictions, they didn't have courage. They didn't have the courage of their convictions. Because, yeah, it would have taken some courage for them to say this especially because the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests were, were condemning Jesus, were saying they wanted to arrest him and put him to death. So as you can imagine, when you have a person who is under that kind of scrutiny, under that kind of uh, persecution, to identify with that person would have a big cost. We saw this, we will see this later um, in, in the writings of Paul, especially in 2 Timothy, when he's saying, when he's, now that he's in prison, now that he's no longer preaching publicly, now that he's no longer, and he performs some miracles himself, not many, now he's been put in prison, and, and so now people run away. They don't want to deal with that part. My leader's in prison. Right? So it's the same thing here. But in particular, notice that what they, what they feared most. For fear, this is the, the second part of, of verse 42, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. The Pharisees had already done this to the man born blind after he stood up for Jesus Christ. And he said, never has a man ever given sight to the blind. Right. This 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 one has to be at least a prophet. Remember that. Well, because he was publicly proclaiming in front of the Pharisees, they, they threw him out of the synagogue, too. But he had the courage of his convictions. So what's the issue here? Why were they afraid of being put out of the synagogue? Well, again. It was a social gathering place. And you can imagine if they're the rulers, they had a prominent place. See, it's, it's, it, it, people who are prominent have the most to lose, right? So in a sense, 
It's apples and oranges to compare the man born blind with these rulers. After all, he had been the direct recipient of a miracle, life-changing miracle from Jesus Christ. And he had a lot less to lose. In fact, he had nothing to lose relative to the rulers. I mean, he had been sitting on a street corner blind and, and asking people for money. And now all of a sudden he's healed because of this miracle worker. You see, so he, it, wasn't like he, he, it wasn't like he was prominent or had a lot of money. None of those things. So it was not it was not as big a deal for him to do that. But it really was for the rulers. They were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. And fear is a mighty motivator and always for the bad. If you notice that when people want to motivate people to do something they otherwise wouldn't do, they inject fear into their hearts. We've had a recent experience of that in our own country. Right. How think about it. I mean, I'm not going to preach on politics. This isn't really politics, though. It's an illustration. If in 2019 somebody had told you that the whole country would be shut down, that they would say churches can't open, that they would force you to put a mask on your face everywhere, that they said you couldn't even come within six feet of your own family members. What would you have said in 2019? That'll never happen. We won't stand for that. But inject some fear and inject the idea that, you know what, I don't want to die. I don't want to have this illness, even though less than 1% of the people actually died from it. I guess I am preaching a little politics here. But again, it's an illustration. right? But that fear was driven in. Every day there was that, that ticker that said, now it's 300,000. Now it's 400,000. What's happening? The fear is building. There's still people today that are deathly afraid. And yet, and yet, what was the only thing that changed? Yet, now, yet, don't get me wrong. There were certain groups in the population who should have concern, big concern. I'm not talking about them because it wasn't just them. It was everybody. How did things change? Fear. You inject fear into the hearts of men and watch what happens. If you want to if you want to if you want to drive men and women into the direction that they otherwise wouldn't go, get them scared and they'll go. Most people. Right. Most people. I mean, there, there were there were churches in this country that stayed open. We tried our best. We even had two very prominent members of our congregation die of covid. And yet, you know, we tried to stay open. What am I saying? Well, I'm not pointing the finger of approval to us. What I am saying is that the only thing that defeats fear is love, right? And, and when you understand how much God the Father loves you and that all things that happen are only happening because he has allowed them to happen and that you have nothing to be afraid of, even, even if you die, you have nothing to be afraid of. What's going to happen if you die? You're going to go and be with Jesus Christ face to face. Well, that's pretty cool, right? So everything changes or should change when you know the scriptures and you're a believer. But clearly they didn't, right? And and what did they fear? They feared being put out of the synagogue. What was that? You know what it was? It was a loss of status. It was it was it was being seen as something less than they had been before. It was being, in a sense, ridiculed, ostracized, talked about, having having shame put upon them and separation from that community. But underneath it all, as we see in the last in, in verse 43, underneath it all, here was the issue. They loved the approval of men 
rather than the approval of God. A lot of people go along to get along because of that. They love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They don't step out and boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ saved them, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. We're not immune to that. I mean, the fact is that I think every one of us can probably think about a time in a situation where we held back from mentioning Jesus Christ, from preaching the gospel, because we what? We were more concerned with the approval of the people in front of us than the approval of God. That's a lesson for us. And what is it? What is it? It's fear as a result of caring about what people think of you. They feared the they, they did fear the shame too. I mean, I mean, if you look at the, the martyrs in, in in countries where there's real persecution of Christians, okay, there's tremendous shame. The community puts it on you if you become a believer in Jesus Christ. You are given the worst jobs, taught, put into prison, having your your pastors arrested. I mean, lots of shame gets dumped on in other countries because you're a Christian. And yet they're bold. So many of them are so bold in, in, in speaking out and, and continuing to preach the gospel, even when they know if they're found out, they're going to be arrested and maybe even killed. But shame is, a, is another motivation for people. But again, underneath all of that, these, these men anyway, cared more about their reputation with people than about their reputation with God. They cared more about their reputation with people rather than their reputation with God. Now, what causes that? What really causes it is not having the right relationship with God. That's what really causes it. You see, if you have the right kind of relationship with God, if you understand how much you're loved, if you're, if you're grateful enough for what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, you'll overcome this. You won't care about what people think about you when it comes to an issue where what you really want is to stay close to the Lord and have your reputation with him enhanced so that he can turn and speak to the angels and say, now, now look at that. Their faith overcame. Look what it overcame. But a lot, a lot, a lot. And I'm talking about Christians because this isn't an issue. This is not an issue of salvation. It's not. Salva- how, how are you saved? Believe. You hear the good news and you believe it. Okay? But but then from there, how do you then grow? How do you then have the blessings of your relationship with God? A lot of times it's being able to talk about him to those who may be resistant to the message. But you don't care because you know that's what you've been asked to do. And you want to do it because you also know the tremendous the tremendous thing that will happen when somebody that you're speaking to believes in Jesus Christ. That they go from death to life, that that God is glorified once again. But unfortunately, they, a lot of people keep their faith in Jesus Christ hidden. Or a simple way of putting it is, they were secret believers. They were secret believers. Oh, they believed, but they kept it a secret. What about you? Are you a secret believer? Are you somebody that says, I'm glad I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but beyond that, I really care about what people think. 
I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I don't want to cause trouble. So I'm going to keep it to myself. I'm going to have a hidden faith. I'm going to be a secret believer. Have you kept your faith in Christ hidden? Have you kept it hidden from your neighbors? Have you kept it hidden from your fellow workers? Have you kept it hidden from family members? If so, what are you afraid of exactly? I'll tell you the other side of the coin. You're missing out. You're missing out on a great deal of blessings. Not because God says, well, I'm going to reward you because you did what I want. But it's inherent. It's built into having the public conversation, proclaiming your Lord, declaring his greatness. Built into that comes a life when you are blessed tremendously. After all, let me ask you something. What's what put it in the scale of, of your values? If you really thought about it, if you really understood what you that God is th- thinks about you, what God has declared you perfectly righteous, and you preach the gospel, even though you know in most cases you're going to get resistance. Well, think about the day when somebody in your family becomes a believer in Christ because you were bo- you were bold in your faith. And I want you to think about that and then compare it to all the other people, right, who may have said no, who may have ostracized you even, who may have thought less of you. I don't know about you, but that price is worth it. They even have one person believe in Jesus Christ because I was willing to say, I'm a believer. Here's the truth. There's a judgment. But Jesus Christ died for the cross on on the cross for your sins so that you won't be judged, that you'll be moved from death to life. I would I, I put those two things on the scale and preaching the gospel and having somebody believe is, is so much more wonderful than keeping your faith hidden. I want you to turn to First Thessalonians chapter two, verse one. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse one. Because Paul got this, obviously. I mean, other than Jesus Christ. There was nobody who was more bold in preaching the gospel than Paul. And he went everywhere. And here here was a Jew that had everything. I mean, he talks about this in the book of Philippians. You know, I I was an amazing Jew. That's what he said, basically. Look at me. I come from, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I knew the law inside out. And I was blameless as regards the law. And yet, he said, what did he say? I sacrificed all of that for something better, right? For something better. Knowing Jesus, my Lord, knowing that I am justified by faith, having that incredible burden. Remember that. Don't don't forget the burden that you used to carry because you didn't know that your sins were forgiven. Think about all the people, your neighbors, your friends, who still have that burden, whether they know it or not. And think about the freedom. Think about, think about the fact that, again, you are de- you've already been declared righteous by God forever. See, that's, that's God's looking at your reputation. That's what God says about you. That's what God thinks about you. And how wonderful is that? You know, I don't know why, actually, we care what people think about us especially unbelievers. 
I mean, they, their scale of values is totally off. They, they, they're not, they're not, they don't have the spirit indwelling them. They don't know who they are. A, a great deal of them now think that they're descended from animals. And we care what they think, but we do. We do, unfortunately. Why? You know what? One of the big reasons why is that we don't always believe what the word of God has to say. Because if we did, it would be no contest. It would be no contest. But we have to hear it on a consistent basis and build up our hearts, you see, to have that boldness there. Well, here's what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know. In other words, Paul didn't just preach it. He lived it, right? It wasn't just words. It was courage. And he and so think about it. He got knocked down. He, he was left for dead. And yet he didn't go up, you know, I mean, many of us might say, okay, that's it. I've done my part for Jesus Christ. I'm going back to Antioch. I, I got a great life back there. I'm going to be loved by all the Christians back there. Why should I go to another Gentile city and get, have this kind of abuse? Well, fortunately for us, that was not the attitude of Paul, right? Verse 2, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had noticed the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. He was left for dead. He was beaten times without number. He was shipwrecked. That's opposition. I want to compare that. This wasn't Jesus Christ. This was a, this was a human being that was the sinner. Okay. I want you to compare the opposition that Paul faced and he didn't back down from boldly preaching the gospel. I want you to compare all that. To us in the United States and the level of opposition that we really face in preaching the gospel, it's it's not much. It's not. It's momentary light affliction that's producing for us a weight of glory far beyond comparison. Then he goes on for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. By the way, that's what most that's what most preachers do. Right. Most preachers, if they're not preaching the gospel, if they're, if they're talking about only about having your a best life now and having a great family life and having been having thought of a little better than other people, because, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm holier and then now. And you, by the way, you really are. But I'm talking about in terms of, well, you know, I, I tithe on everything I owe, I, I earn and, you know, I fast twice a week rather than the gospel. Right. So but he didn't do that. Paul didn't exhort from error or impurity or by way of deceit. In other words, he said it like it was. He didn't hold back. But just as we here we go, here's the approval that matters. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. That's that's what we're talking about this morning. That's what the rulers in in uh, Israel of the day did not have. They, they were not thinking about the fact that they too had been given a tremendous deposit of truth. 
And but they as a matter of fact, they had directly heard from Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? And he never spoke a lie. Okay, but but yet they didn't. They backed down to the opposition. We've been approved by God. That should be the only approval that matters. That should be the, we should care about our reputation in front of God. Not be, not in front of men. We've been approved by God. In other words, He's declared us perfectly righteous in his eyes forever. We should care about that and the implications of that. We should want to live according to who God has made us to be. Now, how, how do we live according to what God has made us to be? Now, you may be expecting from a preacher all these things I'm going to tell you to do. That's not how you, that is not what I'm talking about. You have to first know who God has made you to be. And when you understand that, when you understand I was dead, but now I'm alive. I've had all my sins forgiven. I am an adopted son or daughter of the living God. I am I am seen as perfectly righteous in his eyes forever. And on and on and on. I am in union with Christ forever. Nothing will ever come between me and the love of God. I am in union with Christ forever. That's who I am. And so what I want to do once I know that, or hopefully what you want to do, is live like it. Is live like it. And Paul got that. Well, imperfect. He made mistakes, but he understood he was approved by God. And so he and he knew he'd been entrusted with the gospel, which is a treasure. And I think, you know, that's why we need to first of all understand and know inside and out the gospel, which is a simplicity, right? It's simplicity. All the error comes from complexity. Right. From people who want to take from things here and there and kind of slap them onto the gospel. Gospel is simple. It's pure. It's amazing. And so and we're entrusted with that. We're, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're look, we're never going to be that have to be that in heaven. Everybody in heaven is going to know the gospel. and have already believed it. But here on earth, God has said he said not the angels. Right. He didn't say, I don't trust human beings. I'm going to give the job to angels. He could have. Instead, he says, no, I'm going to have my redeemed do it because they're going to in their in their heart. They're going to understand the magnificence, the value, the riches of this simple message of the gospel. When you have that. I mean, think about it. If if you, if, if you just to kind of boil it down, if somebody said, I'm going to give you a million dollars. But what you got to do is you got to you have to go naked in the streets for an hour. What would you do? I'd be like taking my clothes off. I don't care. Hey, I've been in the hospital. I, I had nurses see my butt. I don't care. Right. But but see, I'm just illustrating. Right. When you know the treasure that you have, that ought to that ought to be the thing you look at. Right. There was a story of a, of a prince one time, and he he was in a his his uh, nation was in a battle, and they lost the battle, and then the leadership, as they did those days, they had a big parade, and and this happened to be in India, so they had all these um, you know elephants and all these things parading, and then they told the prince not that he had to go naked, but he had to he had to take off all of the great garments and the things that associated with being a prince. He had to be humiliated. 
and, and he's going to have to walk a mile. And But then the leader turned to him and he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a bowl of milk for that walk. And let me tell you something. If you spill one drop of that milk, I'm going to put you to death. So so he walked the whole mile. And at the end, he hadn't he hadn't dropped a drop of that milk. And so the man, the man, the, the leader of the country that conquered his looked at him and said. So what did you think about all the things people said about you? What did you what about all those dirty looks they gave you? And the prince went and said, I didn't hear him. I didn't see it because all I was looking at was not spilling that milk. Well, that, that, ought to be, that ought to be the way we see the gospel in our hands. Same way. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. With that, we're now ready to go to back to the gospel of John this morning. John chapter 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and he said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Now, I want to set this in the right place to understand the magnificence of what he's saying here. The love that he had for his father, the understanding that his father was the one who sent him, was the really how it all got kicked off was the what was in the heart of God. Earlier, he had said, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. Right. But now at the end, what is he what is his mindset? What when he's, as it were, preaching the gospel, what does he include? <laughs> he says he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. By the way, there's a lesson for us when he says him who sent me on the one hand, he's talking about the fact that he's God because he says that's that's, uh, you know, when you see me, you believe the one who sent me. But he's also saying that the gospel includes the fact that God and the Son are one. It includes that. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. So it's important that we take to heart what Jesus is really saying in these two verses. Well, again, for one thing, he's definitely testifying that he's God. You know, when people say Jesus never said he was God, I got to believe that either they've never read the Gospel of John or they've read it blindfolded or they never compared any scripture with any scripture or they and they didn't get the context of any of it. Because as we've already seen, he testified to the fact that he was God again and again. He had said, I and the father are one. He had said before Abraham was, I am. So he did it again and again. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at one of the times. Look at John chapter 10. Verse 29, the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ testified to the fact that he's God. Look at John chapter 10, verse 29. And again, he focuses on who? The Father. See, the Father who sent me. Why was he doing that? Well, he was doing that because here, again, his ministry was to the Jews. They worshipped who? Well, they should have worshipped the, the Lord, right? The one they thought of as God. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying, that's the Father, I'm the Son, and we're one. My Father who has given them to me, verse 29, is greater than all, 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's the deity of Christ. But notice also verse 29. What does he do in there? He's saying, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So here again, we get the Father who sent him has primacy, his first, as it were. By the way, that's why they call him Father and Son. We're going to see this in a couple of minutes. You know, there's a lot of people who want to change the Bible. They want to get rid of that father-son thing. They want it to be gender neutral or whatever it is they want. But you know what? That is that is not who our God is. Right? I'm sorry, ladies, but when he illustrates the relationship with himself and Jesus Christ, he says father and son. And there's a lot of reasons for that, according to how God sees things. How God has designed the family, for example. The deity of Christ, again, is demonstrated many times in the Gospel of John. He says, when you see me, you're actually looking at the Father. He's saying that he's God. When you believe in Jesus, therefore, you are believing in the Father who sent him also. In other words, the deity of Christ, and I just mentioned this before, is an essential part of the Gospel message. That Jesus is God, that he wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet. He was those things. As a matter of fact, he's not just the Messiah. Because the Messiah was, you know, from the line of David. No, he's God in the flesh. It's, it's, it's essential that people know that. That the one who died for them is God in the flesh. These, the, the deity of, of Christ, essential part of the gospel. And back in chapter 12, that's the fact that, that, that God is, the, is his father and he's the son. That's what Jesus focuses on. The one who sent me. Think about the one who sent me. He's from heaven. He's God. And I call him father and he calls me son. He submits to the will of the father. So why is that? Well, I'll tell you why that is. Because the father takes the lead in the gospel, in the plan of salvation. He's primary. I want you to go to John chapter 6, verse 38. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, Interesting. Well, of course, you know, he also came in the womb of his mother, right? But he, but here he's focused on what? The fact that he's God. I came down from heaven. I'm the only one who ever did, humanly speaking. I came down from heaven. That's my origin. But not to do my own will. Not, to, not that, that I would come here and have my own agenda. What? But the will of him who sent me. In other words, the son submits to the will of the Father. Not only that, but the Son is obedient to the Father in all things. In all things. Please turn to Philippians now. Chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. The Son is obedient to the Father in all things. This is, this is one of the reasons why it's so important to say son and father. Okay? We've lost all of that in our culture today 
because we've, we've demolished how God's designed the family. We, we demolished, for example, that the father, the, the husband is to love the wife as Christ loves the church and that the woman is to submit to the husband. We've thrown that out. Well, when you do that, you, you kind of throw away what, it, what, it, what he's really saying about that position. Don't, not the person, but the position of father and the position of husband. And because of that now, what do they want to do next? They want to throw it out with God. They've already thrown it out with man. Now they want to get, it, get, it, get rid of it for God. Let's not let that happen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be... Oh, I, I you know this, those of you who've been with me for a while. Every time I go to Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11, I use the King James translation. And the reason why is that the New American Standard butchers it. It says the opposite of what is being said here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't that he didn't think he was equal with God. He knew he was. But he made himself, notice, of no reputation. No reputation. He didn't care about his reputation among men, but only his reputation with his father. And he took upon him the form of a servant. The word was made flesh and was made in the likeness of men, even though he was, the, he was God in the form of God. He was made in the likeness of men. Verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. That's the extent of his obedience, the son to the father, even the death of the cross. A, a brutal death. Wherefore, now verse, verses uh, 5 to 8 of what I wanted you to see in the lesson this morning. I can also never read this passage without also going forward and reading 9, 10, and 11. So I'm going to do that too. Wherefore, God also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And don't just believe that. Pro- proclaim it boldly. Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Back in the Gospel of John, um, just remember that I want to tell you this. We've seen this a lot. Again and again and again in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, the Father sent me or him who sent me. Many, many times. It's unmistakable. This is one of those things. Remember this repetition in the Gospel of John? Well, a big reason why there's repetition in the Gospel of John is because there was repetition in Jesus' teaching ministry. Right? The reason why John talks about believing so much is because Jesus talked about it so much. The reason why in John's Gospel we see again and again and again, the Father sent him, him who sent me. It's because Jesus said it again and again and again. For example, please go to John chapter 7, verse 46. John 7, 46. He was trying to get the Jews to focus on God, the things of God. 
They were interested in the miracles, right? Here's a miracle worker. They were interesting in what interested in what he and his humanity was doing. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but but if that's all you focus on, you got the you got you're missing the most important part. So Jesus again and again and again says, "Please keep your focus on the Father. He's the one who sent me." I do nothing except what he told me to do. I say nothing except what he told me to say. Look at John 7, 16. Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You know, Jesus sent the Spirit after he went to heaven. Jesus sent the um, apostles out. He gave them a commission. He gave them a mission, including Paul. And you know something else? He's sending us out, too, on a mission. And, and, if, and pastors, especially. Pastors should take that statement to heart. If it's good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for every pastor. My teaching's not mine, but his who sent me. And therefore, because I have that precious deposit of truth, I'm not going to butcher it. I'm not going to make it my own and make it my own opinion. No, it's not mine to do that with. It's his. Look in John chapter 8, verse 42. John chapter 8, verse 42. Again, notice who Jesus puts the attention on, the spotlight on. Notice John chapter 8, verse 42. It's a tremendous verse. Hell, they all are. I used to say that a lot. This is my favorite verse in the Bible, right? And then next week, no, this is my favorite verse in the Bible because I studied that one. And, you know, they're all amazing. You know, it's just a matter of us having eyes to see. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Notice, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. I want you to picture that, okay? I want you to picture the fact that God sent him. That, in fact, he proceeded forth. And what does that mean? God was there, and then Jesus proceeded forth from him. There's an order to things, just like there's an, and this is amazing, there's an order in the family. Now, let me ask you something. If, if God's son recognized always the order, the fact that, that, that God is primary, that he sets the agenda, that it's his will, and it's his, his mission, and then Jesus comes along in his humanity, but also as the son of God and submits to the authority of his father. Why on earth would we think there's something wrong when we submit to the authority of the authorities that God has put in our lives? All of them. I know I pick on husbands and wives. That's not the only one. Children and parents. Children and teachers. Okay. Um, citizens in the government. You know, that's a tough one these days. I get it. But God has ordained that relationship. It's not our opinion of the government. It's the fact that God has set an order to things. Again, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative. In other words, he wasn't there in heaven saying, hey, I got a great idea. I'm going to do this. Is that okay, father? No. He said, I have come on the initiative of the one who sent me. Again and again in the Gospel of John, Jesus reveals his relationship with his father. And this is like no other gospel, by the way. Jesus calls God his father a hundred times 
in the God. Talk about repetition. I probably said believe a hundred times in this series too. But Jesus, a hundred times he talks about his father. By the way, if you compare that to the other three gospels, in the three of them combined, it's 46. To give you a sense of the focus here in the gospel of John. So as we close together, I want to just ask one more question. Not of you, but of the word. And that is this. What is the relationship? between Jesus and his father. What is the relationship between Jesus and his father? Well, very simply, it's all bound up in what it means to be the perfect father and the perfect son. You see, the the reason why God talks about father and son, right, is because he knows that's a relationship that we can have some understanding of based on the way he has created the human relationships. So it's no accident. So the things that the ideal father, the ideal son, we should take from that and learn from that. And so that we can keep that correlation in our mind when we see about the relationship between the God, the father and God, the son. Not complicated. Fathers and sons. Let's talk about that for a little while. They are to share in so much. For one thing, they're of the same nature. You know, if you have father bear. Baby bear, guess what? They're both bears. So God and the Father share in the same nature, same essence. Not only that, but because of that, fathers and sons share life together. Now, of course, the father takes the lead. There's so much he wants to teach and share his son. But at a certain point of time, when you have that obedience between the son and the father, now the father sees We talk about this sometimes. He sees himself in his son. And so and they have a lot in common and they are to share life together. That's part of the design. Please. Now, you had a terrible relationship with your father or you have a terrible relationship with your son. Take heart. This is talking about an ideal. Right. Because that's where God is. He's saying, I know that this isn't how it works on Earth. But even on Earth, we can have a sense of that's the way it ought to be the way it ought to be. Fathers and sons ought to share life together. A good father and a good son have an intimate relationship. It should be true on earth. It's definitely true in heaven. They have a great love for each other. At the same time, the father and the son are individuals. They're not exactly the same. They each have their own personality. There's another aspect, though, to the relationship between a perfect father and a perfect son. And that is that the father has authority over his son. He directs the activities, or should, (laughs) of his son. Right? The father exercises his will. And the son, this is ideally now, does the will of his father. I mean, something as simple as take out the garbage. Right? The father says, that's what I, that's what, that's my will today. And the, and the good son says, okay, I'll take out the, I don't want to take out the garbage. I think we threw away some fish in the garbage this week, but I'm, I'm going to be the obedient son. I'm going to do the will of my father. I would like to do this in my spare time, but my father says, I need you to do that. And, and the son, the ideal son, always does the will of his father. At a certain point in time, then, the father has the confidence in his son to send out his son to represent him. One of the greatest compliments 
that it, and this is ideally now, but one of the greatest compliments you can have as a son and a father is, is for them to say, he's his father's son, right? He's his father's son. Now, again, given human sinfulness and all of that, that could, that has two meanings that are opposite. I don't, I understand that, but ideally, but in all of that, in other words, the, the son is the subordinate to the father. Think about that. That's also true, amazingly enough. And I don't want you to, at some point you got to turn off your critical brain, right? It's okay to have it down here on earth. It's not really okay. It doesn't work with God and his relationship with his son. It's a matter of faith. The son is subordinate to his father. The father lives and acts in his son. The son carries out the father's will, carries out the father's purpose. And it's a loving thing. At the end of the day, it's a joyful thing. You know, one of the great things about about acting according to your father's will is he's got all the responsibility. I know all I got to do is listen to him and do it. And that's where my responsibility ends. He's the one that's got to make the good decisions, not me. But God the Father and God the Son are also distinct people, but they share the same divine nature. And again, we can understand that in a human way. The Father and the Son are both humans. They share the same essence, but they're different people. So is is God the Father and God the Son. And, you know, the Gospel of John, it's just a tremendous job weaving these two features together. That relationship between the Son and the Father and its corollary. The relationship between Jesus' humanity and Jesus' deity. Right? Tremendous job in the Gospel of John. It ought to because God the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote all the words. So it's going to work out. But again, the Father and the Son are one in nature. They're essential beings. They're one. They share in everything. A simple way of looking at it. They share in absolutely everything that has to do with being God. That's what it means. I and the Father are one. But second. Oh, I had that as a slide. Yeah, I like that. They share in everything that has to do with being God. Omnipotence, omniscience, love, everything. They share it completely. But secondly, their relationship has an order. At the very end of all of, of, of the story of, the, of humanity, Jesus Christ, after God has put everything under his feet, turns around and gives everything to the Father, that he may be all in all. Whether we like it or not, the relationship between the Father and the Son is ordered. It has an order. What is it? Very simple. The Father is the head of the Son, And the son is subordinate to the father, not less than the father, because they share in all things about being God. But in terms of their operation, in terms how they how how things are set up in that divine family, the father is the head. He takes the initiative. He gives the directions. The son is subordinate to the father and submits to the authority of his father. Look in John chapter 14, verse 28. John chapter 14, verse 28. 
And, and sometimes it's it's impossible to separate the humanity and the deity of Christ. So so yes, there's a there's an issue here of humanity submitting to deity, but it's also the order of things and the, the essential relationship, the Father and the Son. That's why they call Father and Son. You have heard that I said to you, I go away, and I'll come back to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. And the Father is greater than I. The only thing I want you to understand is they are one in nature, but distinct with respect to how they operate. You know, you know, you can't have all chiefs and no Indians. It won't work. You can't have twelve cooks that each each want to figure out how to cook the meal in their own way. It ain't gonna work. It's just a matter of when you're operating. There's distinct roles, right? There's the father and there's the son. So there's both unity and order in this amazing relationship between the father and the son. There's an order in their relationship. Unity and order. So, so, so that's how God sees things, gang. Unity and order. You know, want to know why there's not women pastors or there shouldn't be? Because of order. Without even without talking about the characteristics of a woman versus a man, the fact of the matter is there's an order of things, and we follow that of all places in the church. We are we're supposed to. The Father, God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved from him. In other words, there's an order to their relationship. The Father sends the Son. You won't find it anywhere. The Son says, "Okay." You sent me for a while. Now I'm going to send you somewhere. <laughs> that never happens with God. The father sends the son. The son does not send the father. The father chooses the mission, not the son. The son obeys the father and actually depends on him. Now, the reason why I say that is that he provides everything. And as a matter of fact, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. So, so if he's given things to him, it means that the son is depending on the father, not the other way around. But you know what? It all works perfectly at the end of the day. You want to know why? It's real simple. They love each other. And when you love somebody, the order of your relationship is not an issue. It's really not. When you love somebody, you're perfectly willing to have them take the lead and you're perfectly willing to be the one that has to call the shots with that responsibility because it's not a love. It all works perfectly because of the love they have for one another. The father loves the son, loves the son. Please turn to John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, the Father has given believers to the Son, not the other way around, that they you have given me, the ones, would be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. Notice, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's up there in the deity, Godhead. Before the foundation of the world, there was love. 
and the Son loves the Father as well. Please turn to John chapter, this will be our last passage this morning. John chapter 14, verse 31. John chapter 14, verse 31. But so the world may know that I love the Father. Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. How does the world know that Jesus loves the Father? I do exactly as the Father commanded me. (coughs) Unity and order. How does it all work out? Love. This is real simple. You know, and that's what that's what the Lord has set things up for the church to be, for our relationships with one another. There's always going to be an order of things, and yet it all works because of love. There's always going to be different gifts of the Spirit, but it all works because of love. And that's what I want you to think about. If it works for God and he set us up the same way, we got to make it work for ourselves. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the richness of your word. We've been to a lot of passages this morning, but really we could have just picked one because it's all pointing to the same magnificence of you and your son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Father, we would just ask that we would, we ask that you would allow us to understand that in a new dimension of it based on the word and that we also would understand how we are we are privileged with the gospel message and privileged with being able to imitate you and your son in the way that we submit to one another. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.